welcome to Running for the Wine, the podcast where we talk all things tasting and training. I'm Rebecca and I'm here with my co-host Morg. Running for the Wine. Morg, before we dive in to today's episode with our epic guest, I do just briefly want to ask about Frosty Moss because as I remember correctly, I hope it's happened. You did it. How was it? It did happen. Thank you for asking about it. I'm also excited about our guest. But yes, the Frosty Moss is sort of a relay style. Not sort of. It is a relay style race. We have an episode from last year that you can go back and listen to. Episode uh, 28, where I did a live sort of race report. But it's a... For those familiar with like maybe Ragnar in the US or Ekiden style races in Japan, I think they're pretty popular all over the world at this point. Uh, relay style races are like you have a team of three or five or some number of runners and somebody starts and runs X amount of miles the rest of you hop in a van and drive to where the first runner is going to finish, and then somebody else takes the baton. Everyone else rides in the van. If you're a runner and you ever get asked to participate in one of these, just say yes, even if you're not ready for whatever the distance is or how many legs you have to do. It's so fun. <laughs> You'll have the best day with your friends, uh, colleagues, whoever it is in the van. The running will be fun at first, and then the next leg you'll be like, why am I doing this? And then by the last leg or however many you have, you'll be like, I just want to be done with this. Um, but you'll be done, and then you'll have – Hopefully some sort of, you know, beer, wine, or sparkling water at the end and celebrate. And that's how it went for us. It was great. Only one small blip for us was one of our runners uh, when we were picking him up in the morning. Uh, took a hard fall before the race started. Uh, we're taking his dog inside and, like, gashed his knee. And it was also his 40th birthday. Um, but he powered through. He, I don't know how he did it, but, uh Yeah. Somehow we gutted it out and we finished the race and we did pretty well. We finished in the top 10. Nice. And it was a pretty pretty good weather. Yeah. All, it was just a, a great day. It's the fourth year in a row I've done that race. And uh, yes, please, like if you're a runner and you've considered doing one of these kind of relays, just do it. I promise it'll be fun. I promise. It'll also be horrible at moments, but <laughs> mostly fun. Uh, overall fun. Did Did you all have mustaches? Because last year, like, we did. you had mustaches, yes. right? Yes, we some we all had mustaches. And it was because it was our friend who unfortunately hurt his knee, but still powered through. It was his birthday. So we also, this race, if you have a team of five like we do, you do three legs each. So at the end of each of his three legs, we had a little cupcake with a, a candle and saying happy birthday. So he had three birthday parties uh, within the race. I thought you were going to say he, like, had to run with, like, helium balloons tied to him. Oh, we talked about every lap. <laughs> thing you could think to make someone do on their birthday we thought of that that like yeah balloons or like running in his birthday suit as in like we would have got him like a skin colored onesie <laughs> or something uh all that but uh in the end it was just singing and uh cupcakes and candles but no super fun yeah it was i need great. to i need to get into this relay thing i'm thinking that maybe i should like relay my 5k to give me a better time so yes. that's how it works right like i just like pass the baton to someone who's Perfect. actually a proper runner and yes, they can that, get me my 5k pb yes just run the first k and then drive a, a car to the end and exactly let them. I'm, I'm chasing that pb i've i've been watching quite a lot of stuff recently about because we've talked on previous episodes about you know when when is going to be the year that rebecca tries to chase a 5k pb and like get speedy and actually you know become a proper runner and I keep watching this stuff and I watched something the other day on YouTube and this guy finished 5k and he was running like 3.5 minute kilometers it's like a 16 minute 5k and it's just so depressing <laughs> I'm like I am never I mean I'm not even gonna get 
close. Like that's like two kilometers for me. That's true. Like, but there's a lot of people that could beat that guy by several minutes. You know what I mean? Whatever. Yeah. Doesn't yeah, that's matter. a good point. Doesn't matter. And, and you know, he's like an ex Olympian <laughs> and I'm not, you know. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. Anyway, speaking of epic runners and also amazingly epic wine people. I mean, I don't I don't know where to start, Mog. I don't know where to start with our guest because he's done so much. He's still going. I'm I'm not even exaggerating. This guy literally invented a wine industry where there wasn't one. Like, can we just like pause a moment and and just take that in? Like, invented a wine industry where there wasn't one. That's oh, I'm I'm so excited about this. I can't wait to hear more about it. Like you think of just, you know, wine, I mean, I think of wine just being everywhere and it's not. And then you don't think about it being possible for where there isn't wine to suddenly for there to be wine. This guy did it. So I think maybe the best place to start is actually to ask him to introduce himself to our audience uh, in his own words. So Michael Jergens, I really hope I got the pronunciation right. <laughs> No, you got it. Yes. <laughs> Michael Jergens, welcome to Running for the Wine. Thanks for having me. So, Michael, maybe you could give our listeners like a quick, I don't know if there is a quick rundown of your bio. Is there like a 5K PB version of your bio just, just to kick us off? Sure. I mean, I guess, uh, so I'm a wine uh, enthusiast. I'm a master wine candidate. I'm also a SOM. I'm a CSW. I run a wine consulting practice, actually the largest one in the United States. Uh, I've written, I think, seven books about wine. Um, did I say I was a master wine candidate? I don't know yeah, if I that's that. pretty uh, cool. Little nice little uh, flex. <laughs> yeah, a little humble brag. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and yes, I started the wine industry in the kingdom of Bhutan, <sighs> and I like running. <laughs> I just like crowbar that at the end. Oh yeah, and there's that running thing that I do. Yeah. Yeah, there's that too. <laughs> And I do some other stuff too, but that... Uh, of course you do, because yeah. you know, you've got all this spare time on your hands. Yeah. I mean, wow, where do I start? Because there is so much to unpack in that. And like we have had both MWs and MW candidates on the pod, and that's just an insane thing and in and of itself. But for you, running and wine, I know, are inextricably linked, but I want to start with the wine life, because that's that's my thing. And one of the things that captured my attention, and I, I, I do hope that this is true, uh, just because it makes me smile so much, is, is it true that your formative moment with wine was drinking Gatinara from a plastic cup? Yep, that is exactly <laughs> right. Uh, and it was, <laughs> it was that epiphany moment that made me, as a 22-year-old kid, go, oh, Huh. <laughs> Maybe there's something to this wine thing after all. Uh, and and then the rest is history, as it were. Here's a funny story. So I was being interviewed by, I think, Bloomberg. Um, and I told that story and they, they wrote as, about as it. As you do. As you do. As one does. You know, as one does. Uh, you know, it was the, you know, major global media outlets, you know, finding out about your formative wine moments. And so the mayor of Gatnara <laughs> tracked me down and, and got on a Zoom call with me. This is during the oh, pandemic. Man. And I, I was like, who are you? And he's like, I'm the mayor of Gatnar. And <laughs> is it true that this this is what started it? And I go, yeah, it's absolutely true. And he was like, 
you have to come back to Gatnara and we will give you the key to the, to the town, you know, all 8,000 people and we'll host a party in your honor. And I was like, as soon as this COVID thing is done, I'm so doing that. Oh, you have That's to. amazing. I thought you were going to say like the plastic chalice of, <laughs> of record or something, but yes, the key, the key makes more sense. So I, I don't know, Morg, if you are familiar with Gatanara. Uh, so it sounds like a space. No, I'm assuming it's a space base uh, somewhere. No, I'm, I'm not. I'm guessing it's a small, somewhere small in Italy. It is. I was just going to ask. It's probably, what, it's probably just like a couple hour drive from you, Rebecca, right? Yeah. Uh, it's about two and a half hours away from me up in the hills. Uh, these are wines made from the same grape variety that is used in Barolo, so Nebbiolo. Um, they are particularly expressive and floral, I find, from Gattinara. They are actually some of my some of my favorite Nebbiolo wines uh, outside of Valtellina. Uh, I'm a huge fan. Travellini is one of my favorite. It's like one of my, you know, just desert island wines. If I, you know, if I get to pick a list that's going on it. Yeah. So when I heard this story, I was just, I was blown away because this is, this is not a wine you drink from plastic cups. I'm just saying. <laughs> no, no, not. And you know, it's funny. The last time I was in Milan, I was like, I got to go to Gatnara. This was like years ago. Cause I got to go see it, but it just happened to be on Christmas day. That was the only day we had available. And I'm like, let's just go out there and see what's going on. So we went out there and of course everything was shut down, yep. but I played Frisbee in the Travellini vineyard <laughs> in the snow on Christmas. Their stuff is amazing. Morg. If I can, if I can find you a bottle and get it sent to you, not least because Travellini have these amazing ergonomic bottles that are specifically designed what? for ergonomic pouring and to catch what? the sediment in the neck. It's such a great story. Wow. Yeah. yeah, it looks cool. like the bottle got left in the sun and melted. It really does. It's, they're very cool. That's cool. I'm surprised that you know that, Rebecca. That's a pretty esoteric fact about the Travellini <laughs> bottle that... Is that's well that's Rebecca's brand. It's esoteric wine stuff, yeah. and also non-esoteric. <laughs> as as an as a uh, Vinitaly International Certified Italian Wine Ambassador, I feel like it's my it's my it's my goal to know those those weird facts. I could also <laughs> do a deep dive into the unstable anthocyanin profile of Nebbiolo and Gattinara, but you know, there's another guy fine. who's in Piedmont who's doing like this weird. Um, stuff where he's fermenting and aging his wine in um in jars in a, in a pool underwater yeah um and i forget the guy's what? name but um he bought like an old stash of the travelgini bottles that he found in a warehouse because he's cheap and so he's he's selling it in the travelgini bottles as well that's amazing they're they're beautiful they're also morg they're matte black they're they're seriously they're they're kind of like the Darth Vader of Nebbiolo. <laughs> cool. That goes back to that sounding like a space colony. It's a, yeah. They're they're fabulous and they they last for decades and are so complex and floral and just. Yeah. So the the Gatnara story was um, so my dad he had gone to Italy on a on a business trip and he wasn't a wine guy but while he was there and I think he was in Turin. Um, he met someone who gave him this bottle of wine as a gift. And so he, he took it home and he showed it to me and he's like, I got this bottle and it's old 1975. Um, and he's like, old wine's good. I think close to me. <laughs> like, we should drink this. And I go, I'm not drinking that. That's wine. And he, goes, he goes, come on, let's just try it. I can't drink a whole bottle of wine by myself. And I go, all right, I'll try it. And, uh, and so I did. And, and, and actually what happened was he goes, he goes, you know what? 
uh, we should smoke cigars because cigars and wine go well together. <laughs> this is this is how how much we knew about wine at the time. And so my mom goes, "If you're going to smoke cigars, you have to do it in the garage." And so we went out <laughs> in the garage and we sat by the washing machine because that was the only place there was space. And we figured out how to open this bottle of wine and we poured it into plastic cups and lit up cigars. And and I took a sip and was like, "Holy shit! I see why people care about this. It's kind of interesting." Wow. It's funny because people always say that, you know, you should work your way up to those amazing bottles, you know, like you need like something easy, you know, quote unquote easy to get people into wine. Like you should start on just like really soft Merlot. And it's like, no, actually, I think if you just dive right in with the really good stuff, if you have the opportunity then you immediately begin to understand that this isn't just some like fermented grape juice. This is, this has got, um, aging and complexity and story and history and you taste it all even in a plastic cup like it's going to come out great Uh, and that's one of my pet peeves about things in the wine industry is like no 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 you don't you don't need to start people on this like quote-unquote easy wine you don't need a gateway drug yeah exactly straight to heroin yep (laughs) exactly (laughs) that's what i'm saying except listeners i'm not saying that We don't condone drug use. Remember everything in moderation, but start in moderation with things like a Gatinara. You know, I believe that we are neurologically wired to respond to wine, and that's why we've been doing it for ten thousand years. Mm-hmm. And so it's 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 in it. It's it's within us neurologically. This this pathway that says, "Oh, wine is awesome," and all you need is to flip that switch in your brain to turn that on. And however you get there, like maybe some people do get there with the cheap Merlot. For me, it was the Gatinara, but it's, I think it's just a, what's going to flip the switch for you. Yeah. And and once it's flipped, you know, then you fall down the rabbit hole and you you see just how deep this thing goes. And you you end up as an MW candidate starting a wine industry in a place where it doesn't exist. Yeah. Just like all of us. Yeah. Just, you you know, the, the standard, you know, you know, road forward. You, you take one sip, and next thing you know, you're in the Himalayas plant Merlot. Yep, or, or, or you're <laughs> upping sticks to Verona to learn a whole new language. And yep, I, it's I get it. Yeah. Morg, I'm working on you. No, you've. I was just going to say that, like, you officially have flipped the switch in my brain. I, di- I didn't think there was a switch in there, and I was like, yeah, yeah, Rebecca, like this, like you're never going to get me to like crave wine over like beer. And then, yep, I'm actually enjoying a glass of wine right now. Uh, I have the rest of the day off work, and mm-hmm. I bought. I'm enjoying a glass of, we'll record this, Cabernet Sauvignon, which is in the, my, this is my first time ever, Rebecca, I bought the small size bottle. It's like, I think it's like a half bottle. Yeah. Which seemed perfect for like a lunch, lunch Hashtag wine. single serving. <laughs> yeah, it's tasting so good. I was like having a sip as you were saying all that stuff mm. about the the brain being wired. And I was like, mm-hmm, I got my, that switch is flipped. Damn, I, like I should have brought my wine in with my record. Mm-hmm. I was trying to be like super pro, but I'm just. Sorry. <sighs> Well, we might have to take a break while I go and pour a glass of wine. I'm not drinking <laughs> Italian tonight. I'm drinking Beaujolais. Nothing wrong with that. I was just in the mood. I've been I've been feeling my crew Beaujolais recently, and I managed to grab a bottle. So yeah, I've got it. I think Beaujolais is so underrated. Um, Me too. It's the crew Beaujolais is just 
simply spectacular and the price to value ratio is really really good so um, and it it has all that stuff that i like about italian wines which is that good acidity levels not too high alcohol potentially floral but well structured it's just yep and they, you can get some really neat spice and, and yeah. pepper and some earth on especially like a morgone yeah see that would that's my go-to crew is morgone morgone yeah mine too morgone or Milano Bonne. yeah my girlfriend is more like on the flurry side. You know, she mm. likes a little bit more floral, but I like it a little kind of heartier. And actually, Morgan is how is one of the first wines I ever tasted. It was my dad's favorite wine as I was growing up, and we always used to drive down there so that he could pick some up. Wow! Now I want this to become my my go to wine because, like, like Morgan, what are you drinking, Morgan? I feel like this could be my brand. Oh yeah, Morg! I've never even <laughs> tried it. I've never even had it, but I feel like I'm gonna figure out. Who distributes in your area, Morgan? I'm going to try and get you some, <laughs> do some stealth. I'm going to talk to my contacts and see if I can get you some wine. And wait, not to derail the conversation before maybe the running part, but Michael, I'm curious, before the plastic cup of Catanara by the washing machine, what was your like, if the needle moved to wine in that moment, where was the needle before? Well, was so, it like? So I grew up in, in Southern California, you know, when I was kind of like a punk rock skateboard kid, you know, surfing and skating and that sort of stuff. And that lifestyle is more of the Mexican beer and tequila yeah. uh, crowd. And that was sort of, you know, my jam with the Mexican beer and tequila. Yeah, that makes sense. Like a, like a Pacifico and a shot of, I don't know what, like a Hornitos or something. Yeah, we, I mean, Hornitos, that's the good stuff. Uh, back, back then, <laughs> you know, as you were going yeah. Cuervo or Mezcal. But we used to do this thing, like we would, my friends and I, we'd drive down to Rosarito Beach in Mexico and we would stop along the way at the Corona factory right outside of, of Tijuana. And you could buy a case of Corona for $2. And if, and if, and if you brought the empties back, they would give you back a dollar. <laughs> so <laughs> we would stop by and we would spend our two bucks and we'd get our case of Corona. We would go down and we would sleep on the beach in Rosarito. Actually, there's a little beach just north of Rosarito that had this little fishing village. And if you brought extra shit, you could, they fished lobsters so you, if you brought like, I don't know, leftover t-shirts or old jeans or whatever, you could trade them for lobsters with the, with the villagers and we'd sleep on the beach and we would surf and we would cook lobster over the fire and drink Corona. And it was glorious. And I don't think I appreciated it at the time, but looking back on it, it was just absolutely epic. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it was just like looking back and I'm like, did we, we really did that? And how did my mom let me do that when I was like 16 years old? Like I'm going to go camp in Mexico and drink dollar beer, you know, <laughs> but uh, things were different back then, man. I feel like I was definitely doing it wrong when I was 16. <laughs> I mean, I didn't live in SoCal for a start. Were you studying? So. You were, you were like studying for your, your A exams or whatever they're called in England? Uh, I was, I was in, uh, both a metal and a punk rock band. So I got that bit right. (laughs) You were in a punk rock band. What did you do in the punk rock band? I'm a bass player, a bass player and a singer. Wow. I actually, uh, I still play in a punk rock band. Our, our latest album is going to drop on Saturday. And, uh, so 48 hours from now and check this out. We are releasing it as also as an NFT for those who are into crypto. (laughs) Um, and as far as we know, it is the first punk rock album to be released as an NFT. That's very cool. Isn't that That's cool? Really yeah. Cool. So we, we we actually titled it Blockchain Killed the Video Star. <laughs> <laughs> An homage to <laughs> MTV and the Buggles. So 
This this is definitely heading into a two-part podcast because there is too much stuff. <laughs> Loving this. We'll have to get together and jam next time I'm in Verona. Uh, I unfortunately <laughs> mostly hung up my, my bass uh, when I met my husband who actually knows how to play. <laughs> Like he's a very successful, you know, four bands, actually knows what the notes are. I'm just like a punk rock, you know, can you give me the tab on that? I'm sure I can figure something out. <laughs> the, the last thing I want to do is play, play music with an actual musician. So like you and I can just get together and make some noise. That sounds great. <laughs> well, speaking of a two-part podcast, or I guess the two halves of this podcast, Wine and Running, We've heard a lot about wine. Also, Mexican beer, punk rock, band, NFT. Holy cow! Uh, what about running, Michael? Big yeah. fan. We've heard you're starting. We've heard you're starting wine. Do you have a similar running moment? Maybe like your dad brought a new pair of <laughs> first pair of Nikes home. What would be the cigar equivalent? I don't even know. Gatorade. Your first ga- handed you your first Gatorade and your first pair of Nikes. Yeah, it wasn't quite. It wasn't quite like that. But uh, so it, this was actually right around the same time. Um, I was probably 22 or 23, and. Um, you know, I was a pretty sporty kid, um, you know, doing athletic stuff pretty much every day and uh, was in really good shape. Um, and so my workout partner and I, it was like it was like a Thursday and we were we were lifting weights. And um, I had somehow heard like on the radio on the way over to the gym that the Los Angeles Marathon was on Saturday Um or maybe it was on Sunday. It was within, it was that next following weekend. It was within a couple of days. And so I, I go to the gym and I go, Hey, Brian, like, what are you doing this weekend? And he's like, I don't know. And I go, let's go run the LA marathon. And he goes, we, we don't run. And I go, ah, we're in good shape. Like how hard could it be? Like, we just go do it. And he's like, I don't think that's how yes. it works, but fuck it. I'm in. And so, <laughs> so I went down to, to Sport Mart and I bought some running shoes uh, and we showed up at the race and we ran the marathon. Um, and it was, you know, as every bit as horrific as you might imagine running a marathon I've never <laughs> run before. Uh, and I actually um, had to call in sick to work for the next two days because I couldn't walk. Uh, <laughs> but but, uh, but it was it was one of those, you know, another one of those things like, OK, we did that. That was cool. Uh, what what next? And um, so then I started trying to do I ran, you know, races here and there. And then did you stay? Hold on really, really quick. Did you stick together? Like, did you guys run the whole thing together regardless of who was hurting more? Did you just kind of, yeah, we ran, the, we, team, we, like, ran we ran the whole thing together and both of us kind of had to limp it in like about the last eight or 10 miles, <laughs> <laughs> but we made it. I think I, uh, I think our time was that's five awesome. hours that's and something, so cool. but yeah, like we were high five. That's, each other. No, that's, that's a great time. I figure that's, that's probably my that's time fantastic. with training. <laughs> well, so, so here's a, here's a follow-up story to that. So, um, I started doing this thing where it's called the Grand Slam, or you might know about this, where you run a marathon on every continent and then you run the final one on the sea ice around the North Pole. I have heard of that, yeah. Yeah, so we, we were doing it. And so I'm traveling all around the world and I'm running marathons and I'm going to Alsace to run the Alsace Wine Marathon, which I thought would be fun. And my son goes, he was like 17 at the time. He goes, dude, I want to go to France with you. That sounds like an amazing time. And I go, you cannot go unless you run the marathon. You have, if you go, you have to run. Yes. And he goes, the ultimatum. Yeah, the ultimatum. Like, that's how this works. And he goes, I can totally run a marathon. And I'm like, all right, you better start training. So he, the next day he comes back and he goes, dad, I ran a mile. 
And I'm like, that's a good start. You're going to need a little bit more. So the next day he comes home and he goes, dad, I ran three miles. And I go, okay, now you just need to do a lot more of that. So the next day he comes in, he goes, dad, I ran six miles. And I go, okay, cool. Now let's get a training regime scheduled for you. And he goes, he goes, why? And I go, so you can train. And he goes, I just ran six miles. I can run a marathon. And I'm like, it doesn't work like that. Love kids. He so goes, hey, well, how, how, how much did you train for your first marathon? And I was like, uh, uh, you, you got me there, son. <laughs> All right. I, I guess you can do it. And so he did not run another day and he showed up and he ran the marathon and it was every bit as horrific for him as it was for me. And I laughed my ass <laughs> off the whole time and was like, yep, that, see, it's easier if you train, but it was, it was much harder for me to, to oh, argue, yeah. you know, the, yeah, just go do it. How hard could it be? <laughs> but I'm convinced like That's fantastic. People, people put the marathon particularly on this kind of lofty pedestal of oh if I could just do it and the reality of it is is that we're as humans we're wired to run and you know while while we're sitting there going oh there's no way I could run 26 miles you know Dean Carnassus is going out and running 350 miles you know he's like 12 xing yeah. it right like the human body can yep. do it uh, it's purely mental. It is just just acknowledging, yes, I can do this. And once you can, your body can do it. It it might hurt a lot, but, but it can get done. Could, could someone just send my body the memo, though? Because I'm not sure my body can. Ah, <laughs> uh, you're Rebecca. You don't be naysaying. You could, you could absolutely oh, go out this weekend and run a marathon. It might, it might take you a long time. It would take me so long. I would still be out there in a week. I do think that's, I think that is a huge part of it. It's like, it's not just like, I think any distance over maybe, I don't know. There's a point where the, a certain distance becomes, it's like physical to a point and then it becomes all mental. And then a certain point it switches, I think back to physical where it's like, it, it, and maybe back and forth several times. And it's like, I think that's, that's my favorite thing about the longer stuff is that like, it's like your mind, your body might, be tired but if your mind is strong you can keep going but there's times where your mind is strong and you just have to convince your body to keep going and there's like some sort of magical like oscillation between those two and as long as as long as the body and mind don't give up at the same time you can always i think keep going um well more do you know have nice. you heard the the iron cowboy guy do you know about him i do i do i am familiar with who that is i yeah. mean that that that's sort of like i think about an iron man because i'm not a good swimmer and you think like oh my god if there's no way you could do an iron man and then this guy goes out and does 50 in 50 days and 50 states and you're like that's physically impossible to do and he's like oh yeah watch this and then he goes out and does 100 in 100 days like <laughs> you know the body is capable of way more than we acknowledge ourselves to believe yeah, I just definitely think mine missed a memo somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> this, I have been like epically struggling this week with my running, so I need to, I need to get back to it. That kind of attitude is never going to build a wine industry in the Himalayas, Rebecca. <sighs> I know, but someone did that already, so I'm kind of, you know, I'm cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 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 at the you know it's okay throw money at the problem kind of approach. Um, so this will make Morg laugh. Morg, I bought a new watch today. <laughs> yes, 
because <laughs> that's going to be the answer to all my problems. It's not my mental fitness. It's not my physical fitness. It's just that I need to upgrade my watch. Yeah, you don't have the right gear. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. I upgraded my shoes recently. <clears throat> They're awesome. I'm just figuring out I need to get the watch. If, if the Dippities had had a smartwatch, he wouldn't have died. <laughs> exactly. This is what I'm saying. <laughs> just, yeah, I need a shake up. So let's let's talk about Bhutan because okay. you have you have mentioned it a couple of times. You have alluded to it, um, and this is super connected to running because you came upon this idea whilst running a marathon in the Kingdom of Bhutan. So that is, that is correct. This kind of ties into my whole thing about you know my body basically can't do anything right now. So like I am barely forming coherent thoughts whilst dragging myself through 6.5k today and you're like mid marathon checking out the aspect on these slopes. So what was going through your mind in that marathon? I I I'm really curious to to have you talk us through it. Well, so you probably have to understand how it started, which is that my girlfriend read this book in high school about Bhutan and this woman who moved there and fell in love and got married and stayed. And so the whole time we had been together, I was hearing Bhutan, 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 but I didn't know what Bhutan was. Um, but I was on like a marathon email distribution list and they sent out this email that said in the subject header, Bhutan marathon. And I would have deleted it except that was the subject. And so I was like, Oh, Bhutan, that's like that thing. That's that place. So I click on it and I open it up and I, and it's like, we're going to go run the first international marathon in Bhutan. We're taking 10 people. If you want to be considered submit. And so I immediately submitted and said, I'm in hundred percent in. And so I went to my girlfriend and I was like, honey, guess what? we're going to Bhutan to run a marathon. And she goes, oh my God, I can't believe this. We're going to the Himalayas. And I go, what are you talking about? Bhutan's <laughs> Wait, <what>? in Indonesia. <laughs> she goes, no, it's not. It's in the Himalayas. And I go, oh, I didn't know that when I signed us up to run a marathon there. <laughs> uh, so, so I sort of was like, okay, I don't know how to run at altitude. I live at you know sea level. Um, let's just go have an amazing time and not worry about our times and our splits and let's just go have fun. And she was down with that. And so that was kind of our approach. And so when we were, we got there and we were just really taking it easy and just enjoying the day and stopping and taking pictures with the villagers and the yaks and the streams. And like, we were, we were basically fucking around the whole, like we were not taking it very seriously. Um, Although we were with some people who were taking it very seriously. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there was a lot of, uh, you know, vaulted, um, you know, marathon runners there, including Scott Jurek was there. Wow. There were some legit actual runners who <laughs> were worried about it. That was not me. So as we're running through these, these terraces with these, these just magnificent crops. And by the way, we'd been in the country for four or five days and, um, and everything that I ate was like the best, uh, whatever, like the best carrot, the best zucchini, the best, everything was the best. And I'm like, this place grows amazing stuff in my head. I just assumed there had to be wine because everywhere in the world that can grow wine does. Yeah. So I was asking everybody like, Hey, where's the wineries? I want to, you know, make sure I visit them before I leave. And everyone's like, we don't know what you're talking about. 
like wineries, what's a winery? And I, and so finally we ended up at this dinner with a bunch of government people who wanted to meet the crazy foreigners who came to their country to run a marathon. And, uh, and I asked one, I'm like, Hey, where's your wineries? And he goes, we don't have any. And I'd been drinking. And so, you know, I immediately start lighting the guy up. Like you guys are screwing up. This place is perfect for wine. I, if you don't do this, this is a travesty. You're wasting this glorious landscape that you've been just gifted and, what is wrong with you? This needs to happen right now. You guys need to start right now, build the wine industry. And they're like, um, are you insane? And I'm like, <laughs> yes, I'm moderately insane. And so that, that led to one thing, which led to another, which led to another. And next thing you know, we're building out the wine industry. Wow. <laughs> Great, crazy. Wait, what? What are like one or two or three things of the next things that led to another? Yeah, that's what I want to know. Like, oh yeah, you run a marathon, you start wine. No, no, there's got to be a step in the middle. Like the next thing was like ordering some vines for, or digging a hole. No, like, here's, so here's what happened. I went back to LA and I did some research and I wrote a white paper that said, here is why I believe the kingdom of Bhutan would be perfect for growing wine grapes. And I emailed it to the, the Bhutanese folks. And I just thought it would be cool if they did it. And um, I didn't hear anything back. Two years later, we went back to run the marathon again because I had so much fun the first time. Mm. And while I was there, all these government people wanted to take meetings with me. And so they're like, hey, did you? So they knew you. They were aware of you like on your, on your return Yeah, so trip. apparently like, everybody read the white paper, which I didn't know. I just slept <laughs> it over the transom, right? Here you go. Like, do this. Let me know when it's done. And so they were like, we're really intrigued by this idea. It fits in with our gross national happiness pillars. And, and it just, it sounds awesome. How would we do it? And I said, no problem. I'm a consultant. I went back to LA. I wrote a 10-year business plan. I defined all the work streams. I drafted the wine regulations for the country. And once again, I just emailed it all the way. I'm like, here you go. Go go do this. Let me know when it's done. I want to come visit and drink the wine. I never set out to do this. And, uh, and they came back to me and they're like, this is amazing. We want to do this. And I'm like, you should totally do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah you like, should do that. Yeah. And they're <laughs> Just like, like I said, they're like, we need a partner. And I'm like, yeah, you should get a knowledgeable partner. And they're like, no, you're missing what we're trying to say here. Like, will you do this with us? And I had to pause a, a, a long minute and think, you know, do I really want to try to develop a wine industry from scratch in a very remote area of the earth that is literally 12,000 miles away from where I live. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's not down the end of the street. Yeah. It's, it's, and so, but it's just a 12 K yeah, it's literally a 12 K. Um, so, but I, I inevitably concluded of all the cool things to do in the world of wine, like starting an entire industry in a country has got to be right up. I think the last time this was done was probably New Zealand in the 1800s. Yeah. Like you just don't. And even if a country decided that they were going to do this, the, you know, the odds of them randomly picking me <laughs> to come do it with them. Pretty I mean, low. Right? To be fair, you did write the wine regulations for the country. So, I mean, it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good fit. Like I loved well, how you casually dropped that in like, yeah, I wrote these wine regulations. Like, you know. Well, you know, I like they needed some and like, if you're <laughs> going to do this, here you go. Here, here's how I would suggest you do it. And uh, those have yet to be ratified, by the way, but uh, the draft still exists. So, so yeah, that's how it worked. And then once we, once we figured out, yeah, we're going to do this, then it was another couple years of trying to figure out how to get vines into the country with the right, you know, phytosanitary mm -hmm. provisions. Um, you know, Bhutan's the only carbon negative country on the planet. Wow. 
Wow. Yeah. And they're revered wow. for their sustainable agriculture. So like you don't just want to be dropping foreign species into the mm-hmm. middle of it without the appropriate <laughs> controls and protocols. So we we had to figure all that out and figure out where we were going to try to plant stuff because who knows what's going to grow mm-hmm. and where it's going to grow. And so we had to find some sites that represented different altitudes and different microclimates. So did all that research and then, then uh, started planting. And we'll do our first harvest this year. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah, we're actually doing this super cool thing um, that we're calling First Barrel. And imagine having like the first bottle of wine ever produced in Italy, Rebecca, right? Oh that would be insane. Oh or the first bottle of wine in the US. I'm about to make the first bottle of wine ever in a country. That's and so we're going to. Holy shit. Right. So we're going to make the very first barrel. We're going to have those 300 bottles be very special, you know, limited edition. We're going to donate them to museums and uh, probably a few lucky people will get their hands on it. And then you'll have literally a piece of history. It's crazy. Oh, my God. That's awesome. Man on the moon stuff. That's really cool. And I do want to ask about varieties because you, I believe, are planting one of my favorites, which is Cabernet Franc. And you got some Pity Men Sang as well. So what led the variety focus? Because obviously this is this is not somewhere that is a center of domestication for vines. So you've got to, like you say, bring stuff in. So how did you make that selection? Just to get like super geeky for our listeners. Yeah. Oh, I can, we can get super geeky on this. Yes. Um, so, so we don't know what's going to grow. Mm-hmm. And if you look at Bhutan, the south side of Bhutan is about 500 feet in elevation. The north side of Bhutan is the highest unclimbed mountain in the world at 27,000 feet. Wow. So, and that, that span is about 400 miles. Mm-hmm. So in 400 miles, you go basically straight up. And so I have every climate zone known to man from jungle, wow. like lions, tigers, monkeys, elephants, jungle to glacier. And wow. so um, the first thing we, we said is we, we, we need to try some stuff at different altitudes. Mm-hmm. Um, to kind of capture some different climate zones. That was number one. And then number two was, I don't know what varietals are going to grow. So let's not bet the farm on any one specific thing. Let's try a bunch and see how it, how it turns out. And then the third piece of this was I need to be able to sell the wine. And so Mm -hmm. it could be that the Arcaselli, you know, or, or, you know, Hondurabi Zuri or something just super obscure would be perfect for Bhutan. But Bhutan's already weird enough. <laughs> yeah, if you then can't like market that to someone, what are you doing? Yeah, so we're like, we need to have some international varieties that people will recognize, and hopefully one of them will work. So we planted 12, you know, very well-known varietals, Cab, Cab Franc, Merlot, Syrah, Pinot, Malbec, uh, Tempranillo, Sangiovese, Chardonnay, um, Sauvignon Blanc, Chenin, Riesling. And then the one oddball that's in there is the Petit Mansang, mm-hmm. which I chose for two reasons. One, I freaking love Jeanson. I think. Yes. That, <laughs> I was hoping that would be the answer. Just like, yeah, it's just a complete indulgence because the Jeanson wines are amazing. <laughs> and I don't know, do you know Pacheron de Vicbol? Yes. Rebecca? Yeah, do. that's another, like, a, a, more obscure than Jeanson, but it's, you know, same style. It's just beautiful. Yeah. But the, the, um, one of the things we're worried about in Bhutan is in the summer, there's monsoons. And so, oh, so you need something rut resistant. Mm, yeah. And Petit Mansang is extremely rain tolerant. And so that's yes. kind of my And my still plan. gives you concentration as well in the same time. Yeah. Correct. Yep. And so my I'm, I'm hedging my bets with Petit Mansang. <laughs> but the upside is I also can make a Jeanson style line, which would just be spectacular <sighs> if we can pull it off. 
That's so cool. Which of those is which are are all of those in the is the first barrel? So we don't know, right? <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, like, can I can I get dibs on the Sangiovese? <laughs> so I think what we're gonna do, and, and this kind of remains to be seen because we haven't done a harvest yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what I'm gonna do is mix all the reds from all the vineyards in the first barrel. And oh, so wow. it might be a wine blend. that's not yeah, like a field blend. It's probably not gonna be super drinkable, but it'll be representative of all of the the different yeah. vineyards. It's like a super fun. I love that. Yeah. So, so that's kind of the plan, but I mean, who knows? Like we may find that as we get into this year's harvest, I, I'm making this up, but you know, the Malbec is just simply spectacular. And so, you know, we may do that for first barrel. Oh, we're, ma- we're making so shit up cool. as we go along. Love it. <laughs> so do you have like a special stamp on your passport? That's like a fast track to Bhutan. <laughs> like they just like air, airlift you in when, when they need you. Uh, I don't, but I'm working on it. Nice. <laughs> I'd love to get the, but you know, getting into Bhutan is not, uh, you know, going through the Bhutanese airport is, it takes about five minutes. So that that's not the issue. It's the it's the going through the Bangkok airport on the way to Bhutan or the <laughs> Delhi airport on the way to Bhutan. That's oh the God, yeah, Delhi airport. Sounds exciting though. Sounds like yeah. I mean, I can either. It's lively. literally exactly halfway around the planet for me, so I can go west and I can go through Tokyo and Bangkok, which takes a little longer. But Bangkok's super nice. Or I can go east and go through Delhi and get a direct flight from San Francisco, which is faster. But Delhi is oh, not mess. as nice of an airport by it's really not. orders of magnitude. So I have no good memories of Delhi Airport and very nice memories of Tokyo. So. Yeah, that, Tokyo's great. Bangkok's really nice. Um, so is it worth you know an extra five hours to not get assaulted by donkeys in the parking lot. Yeah. You know, maybe it is. The other thing is Delhi makes you get a visa to transfer planes, which is it does. Mm. Rebecca, I cut you off, so I'll let you go. No, it was just, I was getting very geeky in my head and thinking, I mean, maybe this will come up in, aid, in the aid station about, you know, just the possibilities there of planting and messing around with stuff and messing around with blends and, and doing things that, you know, around the world in these historic areas, like even New Zealand, which is one of the newer of the wine markets, you know, it has various things it's done because of tradition and that kind of stuff. And just to have a complete blank slate and be able mm. to grow a whole ton of stuff and see what works and maybe do blends that no one's been doing uh, because there are no rules. So much of wine culture, particularly in, you know, the quote unquote old world, the European areas and like I say these centers of domestication, it's so rooted in tradition. And this is what we do because we've always done it. And yes, obviously there are innovations happening within that and outside of denominations and appellations, but just to have that completely blank slate of like, you know what? We're gonna grow all this stuff. Am I going to see what works? That is so exciting and just so thrilling to think about the possibilities. And some of it might not work, but some of it might just be amazing and be stuff that no one's done before. You know, grapes at insane altitudes, grapes that live through monsoons, blends you'd have never thought of. Just it makes my little geeky brain run. Well, and that's why I wanted to do it. It's for exactly everything that you just said as a wine geek, right? The, the opportunity to get to be the dude that does that is yeah. unbelievable. However, <laughs> there were some practical considerations that I neglected <laughs> to consider. 
Um, for example, things like pests and diseases, um, which we don't know what they are. So it turns out in Bhutan, we've got a monkey problem. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, because like, that's not a predator you normally have in your vineyard. <laughs> and they're, they're like opposable thumbs predator. They're like pick your grapes for you, run away with them predator. They're, they're a savvy predator. And, you know, not a lot of uh, viticultural um, knowledge on how to solve the monkey problem. <laughs> <laughs> Europe, Europe's got the monkey thing pretty lit right now. Yeah. <laughs> so, but like li literally, so I've been like going around the world. I'm like, hey, does anyone have a monkey problem? What do you do? And finally, I found this this winery in South Africa, huh. and the the lady's like, yeah, we have a baboon problem. And I okay, go, okay, yeah, it makes okay, sense. Okay, cool. I was thinking like, Brazil, but yeah, actually, South Africa do have baboons. Yeah, so I go, what do you do? And she goes, we just shoot them with paintball guns. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I go, oh, yeah. do they leave? And they, she goes, yeah. And then they come back later and we shoot them again. And, you know, you just keep shooting them. And I go, well, Bhutan's a Buddhist country. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think we could get them to do that. Yeah. So I've been trying to figure So I was talking to the farmers there and I'm like, hey, you know, do you have a monkey problem with your oranges? And they're like, oh, yeah, we got a big monkey problem. I'm like, what do you do? And he goes, so one of the guys was like, oh, what you want to do is monkeys hate snakes. So you get a bunch of snakes. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, that's then I'll have a snake problem. That's, that's not really a good answer. He goes, no, 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 no. You just get like rubber snakes and you throw them all over the place. And then like the monkeys see the snakes and they run away. And I go, but what if there's a cobra, like an actual real snake in the vineyard? And then people are used to just kicking the rubber snakes out of the way and they kick the cobra out of the way. And he goes, yeah, that happens. And I go, that's not a good answer. So I don't have a, a solution. Oh I've been looking gosh. at this. There's a Japanese company that builds these scare wolves. Uh, that are like <laughs> these giant robot wolves that are up on stilts. They're like 15 feet high that roar and they have these laser eyes. Oh my God. And uh, they use them to keep the bears away. Of course they do. So I've been trying to figure out if I can buy one of these scare wolves and put it up on stilts. Oh and, but then God. you go like, there's no wolves in Bhutan. So like, will the monkeys know? That Even recognize it's a wolf? Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe they think it's like the god of the grapes who's like, come, here's, here's what the grapes, grapes are. Yeah, the, the, come the, eat them. The calling cry to the monkeys. <laughs> here, here they are. Come get them. So anyways, so that's an example of things I didn't think about. Holy here's another cow. thing, Rebecca, that you'll... Wait, hold, hold on really quick before you move on. Is the monkey problem specifically that they just go and like pick the grapes and eat them? Or are they like ravaging the vines? Yeah, but, well, so so um, the monkeys have not found the vineyards yet. <laughs> <laughs> but they have found like the mandarin orange orchards and stuff like that and when they find them then it's oh great look at this delicious feast let me go tell all my monkey friends and we're gonna we're gonna go pick and eat all this fruit and so i know i see i'm getting ahead of it because it's yes. only a matter of time yes. before a monkey stumbles upon a vineyard and goes oh what's this oh Look at this delicious Cabernet. Let me tell my monkey friends. And then next yeah. thing you know, you've got your vines are all stripped. So, Love it. and I don't, you wow. know, the paintball is not really an option. So <laughs> I'm sorting through what we do. Actually, what the, some of the other farmers do is they, um, they fence their, their groves or whatever crops are trying to protect with electric fencing. Mm. So we're sort of kind of leaning towards that, but then you have to have power and oh, yeah. two of my large vineyards are in some pretty remote areas where there isn't currently power. So it's sort of this concatenation of, of issues. Oh, my gosh. My suggestion was going to be some, plant something cheaper and tastier than grapes next to the grapes. But that's that, probably Then that's an insane. appetizer. 
<laughs> for one of the main cars. No, but here, here's the, one of the other things I was going to say, Rebecca, and this this will be interesting to you as a wine geek, is do you go cork or cap or screw cap? Oh, yeah. Screw cap is way better for a thousand reasons. Yeah. But cork adds legitimacy. prestige. Yep. Right? So I have no rules. I can do whatever I want. Economically, it makes sense to do screw caps, but I'm also trying to bring this product to the world at a very sort of high price point and say how glorious it is. Now, New Zealand got away with it, right? Yeah. New Zealand said, screw it. We're just going to use screw caps because we can't get cork. And everyone's like, okay, you guys get a pass, but everybody else doesn't get a pass. And so I go back and forth on this. I I still have not decided yet. Um, And I, I flip flop my thinking on it constantly. I think, I mean, my, you are much, much more qualified than I am to make any kind of call on this, but my sort of, my approach when trying to make this decision would be what market are you selling into? Because if you're selling into the Australian American market, screw cap's going to be fine. If you're selling into the kind of Chinese European market, you've got to go cork. And that's, that's insane that that is still the case because it is much safer for you in the long term, obviously, to do to do screw cap or to do vinylock or to do something like that that has none of the repercussions of cork, particularly as presumably there isn't a natural, I don't know if there's a natural cork source in Bhutan. So you're going to have to bring in this from outside anyway. Right. So and there is not, right? So we're, yeah. we're you know, we, we definitely are going to have supply chain issues either way, but screw yeah. caps are easier to get than cork and they make a lot more sense. But there is some, um, you know, perception and some optics around screw caps. Yep. And so, you know, I, like I said, I haven't made a call on it. My, my heart says cork and my head says screw cap. And, you know, yeah. they're, they're, they're waging a war against mm-hmm. each other right now. As someone who knows nothing about wine, I'd say if you go screw cap, maybe you could like have the screw cap be like, look like a mountain. Like maybe the screw cap could be iconic and like have a mountainous design. And you're like, that's the screw cap of Bhutan that I, it's like a calling yeah, card. Well, so <laughs> this, is, this is me as a novice. We, we, I think it's, you know, if you tell the story correctly, like, hey, we're, we have no rules. We're not fettered by the, the uh, old guard. And so we're going screw caps. Then maybe people will get it. Plus you've, you've now got some of the oldest and most prestigious producers in France, you know, Beaumar, et cetera, using screw cap because they can exactly control the oxygenation. They can control the longevity of their wines. They're not having to re- replace corks after 25 years of cellar aging. You can heavily lean into that as a, as a thing. But yeah, it just requires that extra bit of hand cell. Yeah, you have to you have to explain the story, and so I'll I'll tell you a story about our brand name because this is another one of those things that when you hear the story you're like oh my god that's awesome but when you just hear it it's kind of lame so <laughs> well the name of our brand our wine brand is called Serkem S E R K E M two words Serkem you're like okay whatever Serkem here's the story behind it though in Bhutan. When the tradition is when a baby is born, there are special monks whose job it is to name things. And you bring your baby to the namer monks and they give the baby the first name and the last name. So it's impossible to know who's related to anybody because they all have <laughs> different last names. What? Uh, and, and there's only like 30 names that are used. So everyone has like this one of this, the 30, you know, or two of the 30 words in random order. 
So we got to, we got to <laughs> name the brand. And, um, and I have this, this idea of like, Hey, we got these neighbor monks, you know, we're collaborating with the country. We're working together. Let's have the neighbor monks name our baby. And so <laughs> we go to the neighbor monks and I go, we go to the master neighbor and I go, Hey, you know, um, will you name our baby? And he's like, sure. And so about six weeks later, they come back and they go, okay, it's called Sarah Kemp. <laughs> I go, okay. Like, why? <laughs> why? And he goes, all right. So when you go in the Buddhist religion, when you visit a Buddhist temple, um, you are supposed to bring an offering to the gods. And that offering could be food. It could be water. It could be money. Or it could be alcohol. And if it is alcohol, that offering is called Serkam. It is the alcohol of the gods. Oh, that's very cool. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so when you hear the story, you're like, that's the coolest thing ever. But when you just... So mm-hmm. I'm going to have to tell that story on the back of the wine bottle so people know what's up. Uh, yeah. It's going to work, too, especially with you. You're a natural storyteller. This is obvious to anyone listening to this. And that story is awesome. And it's going to be worth the sweat equity you put into yeah. it. Uh, well, I hope so, anyways. So maybe within that, I also say, hey, we have the <laughs> rules for Serechem, so we're using screw caps. Deal with yeah. it. <laughs> exactly. I, I want to see the Serechem San Giovese, which is obviously named after, potentially, we think, the blood of Christ. Oh, so, I didn't know that. Yeah, San Giovese, so the blood of Jesus. So, oh, well, there's that La, La Crema Christi, right? La exactly, Christi, Tears of Christ. Christ. So, all this geeky Italian. I want to, I want to taste your sing, your single vineyard San Giovese from the brand, and I just the the wine world will just implode with <laughs> these references. <laughs> will be the, the the god of the god of the god of wines potentially. From high yeah, altitude, long do, growing I just, season. Mm. I just need to put Bacchus on the label, and then we can just sort of round out <laughs> exactly. all, all the major wine gods. <laughs> you just need to plant some Bacchus as well, and then you could have like just the whole the whole thing full circle. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy when you start thinking about like there are no rules. I can literally plant whatever I want. I could make a Cremant de Bouton. I could do ice wine. I could do ice you know, wine. Yes. Bordeaux blends. You know, I could do a Bhutanese Meritage, a Bhutanese, a you know, <laughs> like I could make up whatever I want. And it's, it's really, a. Uh, on the one hand, it's, it's super, super exciting. But on the other hand, it's, it's also like, an enormous amount of responsibility that I've been entrusted mm-hmm. with. And I'm trying desperately to not fuck it up <laughs> you know, because the mm-hmm. last thing you want to do is be the guy that, you know, brought phylloxera. Oh uh, yeah. I mean, that's also but, where I was going to, when you yeah. were talking about pests, I was thinking, you know, what, what type of vines are you planting? Are you using automatically American rootstocks or are you transporting Pierre de Franco? So like, original rootstock vines but then if you transport original rootstock vines you've got huge problems of like making sure that you don't have any phylloxera appearing and what that could mean to a very young wine industry and that's just so much well and it becomes uh even a bigger deal than you might think because bhutan is a buddhist country so you can't kill anything yeah so if there so were you can't just like sterilize all your vines because you're killing the vines it's just or, or you can't, if you have beetles, you can't spray for beetles because it kills the beetles. Yeah. So everything you do has got to be, um, you know, organic. Sustainable, uh, completely kind of biologically integrated. Correct. So what we did with the vines is I, I the ones we imported initially were um, grafted. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I set up a, a nursery, actually a couple nurseries in the country, and we are propagating, um, you know, own rooted vines. Amazing. I don't think phylloxera is going to be an issue because Bhutan is surrounded by, you know, 15,000 foot peaks. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you've got the altitude. Have... Yeah. And so, like, I, is there a chance that some dude walks through a vineyard somewhere in the world that has phylloxera and gets it on his shoes and then immediately hops a plane to Bhutan and the and the Yeah, but by the time he's got there, like, yeah. Yeah, so I'm not. You've got really pretty good chances. I am much more worried about things like beetles, and we had a beetle problem in one of the vineyards. And then last last season, I got I get daily kind of updates from the vineyards on on WhatsApp. And so I, I got this photo <laughs> last year, and it was like this this thing that looked like a it was like a green caterpillar about the, the length of my index finger and, and about as big around as my thumb. And it was neon green. Oh God! And so the guy emails me this and he's like, Hey, do you know what this is? And I'm like, dude, it's your country. Like, <laughs> like That's your caterpillar. I, I don't know what that is. And he's like, what do we do? And I go, I don't know. Well, what do you guys normally do? And he goes, we don't know. We've never seen this before. And I go, <laughs> I go why don't you guys start picking them off and like taking them over to the side and throwing them in the grass or something? Just and, throwing uh, them over the neighbor's fence. That's what you do yeah. with snails, right? Yeah, exactly. Or uh, or teach the monkeys how to eat caterpillars. Yes, <laughs> that's the Bhutanese wine caterpillar that's waiting its entire all of all of you know known human wheat. life. Finally, the grapes. This is the planet to eat these grapes. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So th- those are the, the kinds of things. The other thing that uh, I'm worried about is birds. You know, in, in all this, it's like the wildlife there doesn't know what a grape is yet. Yeah. But they are going yeah. to. And, oh, uh, and it, when they do, here's a here's a funny deer story. So <laughs> we had a deer problem in one of the vineyards. And so the guy comes over and he's telling me like, hey, we have a deer problem. They're eating the vines. Like, what do we do? And I go, you build a fence. And he goes, well, how high does the fence need to be? And I'm like, if it's deer... <laughs> It needs to be like 10 feet high. And the guy's like, deer can't jump 10 feet high. And I go, oh, deer can totally jump 10 feet high. So this, we have this argument about how high deer can jump. And this argument goes on like for about a week, like over WhatsApp. Like deer can jump 10 feet. Like here's a link to an article. And so finally I go, hey, so here's a question. Like how big are your deer? And he goes, you know, it's a standard deer. It's about 18 inches high. And I go, oh. <laughs> what? And so I looked it up, and yeah, Bhutan has like these little teeny tiny deer that are like the size oh. of a dog. <laughs> so, it's like, yeah, you're right. okay, I'll give it to you. That deer isn't going to jump 10 feet. Yeah, Fine, jump you 10 win. <laughs> yeah. I hope, you, I hope you have like a documentarian following you around or like a autobiographist. Well, that would be you, a biographist. I, I hope there's like going to be a little documentary made about this because this is fascinating stuff. It's funny, it's funny you say that. So we, we are bringing a bunch of people over to participate in the first barrel. Um, and and so, you know, the people that want to, they can go on this trip. They'll come over and they'll help either pick the grapes or, or help make the wine, um, you know, where, wherever the, the stage that we're at. And there is um, going to be a documentary crew from Wine TV that is going to be filming the whole thing. And awesome. with the idea of, yeah, there'll be a documentary. That's fantastic and well-deserved. And So I have two questions. One, can I come? Two, is there also going to be a marathon at the same time? <laughs> Do I need to get training? So the mar- I, I actually think the marathon, if you wanted, if you were going to do a marathon, the Bhutanese marathon is definitely one 
to to consider just because of how cool and unique it is. That marathon is like the first week of March every year. So it would be the exact opposite of when we're harvesting. Um, as far as coming, yes. Um, so there's a, a group called um, Club de Vin. It's like a wine community. Um, and they are uh, kind of sponsoring the trip, putting the trip together and um, doing the documentary. So so they're managing it. You can go to their website, which is Club de Vin, D-V-I-N. Um, I, I, I think they have some information about it up, but not all the details. Cause we're still working some stuff out because of the whole pandemic thing that's going on right now. Oh yeah. That. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. yeah. That's Morg, we should go. I know. And even more than a marathon, all that elevation, I feel like you could host a really cool, like vertical elevation trail race in, in Bhutan, you know, maybe like a an uphill, uphill vertical challenge. Like an Everest. Well, so that is thing. actually happening. Um, the, uh, the, yes. Bhutan is threatened by climate change because they sit underneath the ice caps of the Himalayas. Mm-hmm. So if, if it oh, yeah. really starts to heat oh, up, yeah. you know, they're going to have some floods going on. And so to draw more attention to climate change, they put together the, the hardest ultra marathon in the world, which is called the snowman run. Yes. Um, and the snowman <laughs> run is 155 miles and it goes over five peaks that are like, uh, about 18,000 feet high. Um, and so the inaugural wow. race of this, um, and it was going to be invite only just because people will die. And so you only want like elite runners mm-hmm. coming. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> yes. so, uh, uh, actually a buddy of mine, Louis Escobar, who, um, or you might know from like the, the movie or the book born to run. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I am familiar with that name. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, he's a buddy of mine. And so he actually, I hooked him up and he's going to be the race director for, uh, wow. for the Snowman run. Oh, that's awesome. He does the like all we do is run. He all does the, all we do is run. Yep, he does series. all the all we do is run, and I think he also does yeah. all the Spartan races too. So obviously he knows how to do yeah, this yeah. stuff. So, uh, anyways, we were gonna do the inaugural race in October of 2020, and then the pandemic happened, um, and so it's kind of been put on hold. Yeah. But I think that it'll pick back up for uh, 2023. So if you want to do one of the dumbest, hardest races <laughs> that you could possibly do, I you know you might want to check out the Snowman Run. So, Morg, oh you can sign That's up awesome. for that, and I'll do Harvest because Harvest <laughs> is really hard work. But I feel like the running sounds harder. Yeah. So perfect. I'll end the. I'll, I'll finish the run at cool. the uh, no. Harvest, uh, or at the well, first. Yeah, the first part the, of the one. The timing will will probably be right about right, right? Because if it's in October, <laughs> that'll probably be about the time we're pulling stuff out of barrel from from twenty twenty two. I feel like running for the wine of uh, I've just sorted the first corporate retreat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that running for the wine it doesn't get any more actual running for the wine than that right yeah I feel like it has to happen and also for me like I say just working the harvest would be hard enough work but it will be altitude training at the same time so that would really help my running when I get back because our vineyards are at kind of different altitudes our lowest ones are at like 2500 feet so that's not too bad the highest ones are at like 9000 and that's you definitely feel it yeah. I feel like that would be really beneficial. That's like my next piece of tech, right? I've bought the shoes. I've got the watch on the way. Now I need some alt- altitude training in Bhutan whilst doing harvest. It's all part of my elite strategy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just blown away. thinking like you mentioned at one point, like the human brain being like wired to like wine over like how many thousands of years. And like, I'm not sure how long the Bhutanese, like Buddhist culture has been around, but like sort of the combination of this, like, like, like you talked about, 
what's the coolest thing you can do in wine? Like not even just in wine, like what's one of the coolest things you could do like on our planet, right? Like climate change is a big deal, but like, you're getting to like go to a place on earth that's like remote and rugged and has this amazing Buddhist culture and like plant something that's been important to human history for so long. And like the combination of that and you coming up to your first pour, like I'm honestly like, I have chills thinking about just this like cool thing you're doing, like it, it, within the dirt mm-hmm. of our planet. Earth, right. And, you know? and with the community too. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's not just Mike Jerkins yep. coming in. I mean, the whole country is like super excited about this where we have a, yes. you know, a couple hundred employees, you know, everyone's excited. No, no one, they actually have a huge right, um, wine culture there, but it's all rice wine. Oh, right. And so it's mm, every family yeah. makes their own rice wine, like in their kitchens and they all have their different recipes. Wow. And there's this whole big culture about oh, like cool. my wine and my recipe, secret recipe is better than your secret recipe. Yes. And when you, when you come to someone's house, they greet you and they give you a bowl of their ara. And wow. so they're totally into this. Oh, they just cool. have never had vinifera. That's very cool. Yeah. Actually, cool. Funny That's story. So the, cool. the first time I was in Bhutan, um, we had this opportunity to go have dinner at this diplomat's house. And so it was like my girlfriend and I, and I think it was three other couples. We went to this, this diplomat's house and he had brought like some of his friends. And it was very, very formal. Like the Bhutanese are in their formal robes and everyone's kind of sitting around very stiffly and we're making small talk and trying to find common things to talk about. And finally I go, Hey, I heard about this rice wine thing. What's up with that? (laughs) And and our host looks at me and goes, would you like to try our family's rice wine? And I go, Oh hell yes, I would. Let's, let's do this. And so he goes, I will be right back. And he disappears into the kitchen. And the second he walks into the kitchen, Every other Bhutanese guy at the thing reaches in their robes and pulls out a flask <laughs> and goes, no, 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 no. That guy's wine is bullshit. Like mine is way better. And so I go, well, we're going to have to try them all. Oh and my, my, my girlfriend is like kicking me going like, Mike, you, you're turning this into a wine party. And I'm like, that's the, the entire point of this. <laughs> and he turned it into a giant wine party. And the other couples were not as thrilled about it <laughs> as I was. But the Bhutanese loved it and I loved it. We I got to experience this this whole rice wine culture firsthand. So they it is definitely a part of their culture um, to you know use wine as a way of building community and family. Uh, so I just get to be the guy that shows them what Venefra is all about. Oh, that's fan- well. That that explains, I think, even more to me, like why they why they all read your white paper, why mm-hmm. they were so intrigued, like why they wanted you. To, you know, what I mean? that helps like round out this like the whole narrative to me of like your your journey in here and the interest and in all of that and the that's really well. Cool. And Bhutan has this thing; they don't measure gross domestic product; they measure gross national happiness. I and love so, yeah. that. When I was doing the research for this episode, I was <laughs> like, yes, that's what we that's should be doing. Thing. Was what we all could learn a ton Seriously. from, right? Let's the point of being here is to be yes. happy, not to make money. Amazing. And so with that, there's like seven pillars of how they want to be happy. And it just so happens that wine aligns with a lot of the pillars. So it isn't just also that that, that they have this wine culture. They also have this happiness thing. And when you look at it, it's like balance with the environment and using the community. And like the wine project like checks boxes for like almost every pillar. So they're, they're pretty excited about doing this and it, we couldn't have gotten it done without, you know, the, a level of support and collaboration with the, with the country. There's, there's no way it would have been possible if it was the Mike Jurgen show from Los Angeles trying to plant Merlot. Um, well, if you can, if you can work that whole, that, I mean, the absolutely authentic and 
truthful angle of the gross domestic happiness angle into your, whether it's the back of the bottle text or just your marketing. Like, I don't think you're going to have any personally knock on wood. I don't think you're going to have any trouble like selling this wine or advocating for the whole, you know, this, this whole vision. Initially I wanted to call it happy wine. (laughs) Uh, I wanted that to be the brand (laughs) because I'm like, yeah, wine makes you happy. It's from the land of happiness. That's happy wine. And, um, we inevitably concluded that the price point, you know, we, we think this is probably going to be about a $300 bottle of wine. Mm-hmm. And like, is someone really going to pay 300 bucks for happy, happy wine? <laughs> you know, it's, it sounds like the, the kind of thing you'd buy at the grocery store for five bucks, right? So we ended up going with the Sarah Kem route, which is a cooler route, in my opinion, than the happy it's wine. Cool. It's cool. It's cool. It has cachet and it has like, it has like, yeah, it has a real unpackable mm-hmm. meaning that I think it, it, it lean, you know will be worth worth all of that yeah. and pay off. Yeah, the story is just so incredible. It's so mind-blowing. I, like I said before, it's this one of these things where some days I just sort of sit back and go, I cannot believe that here I am doing this thing. Like, why, <laughs> why me? Of all the tattooed punk rockers that you could pick, you know, why me? Sometimes and, you just need a running tattooed punk rocker in the right terraced potential vineyard at the right time. <laughs> Well, I, I think what it is, is it's the, the universe shows us opportunities constantly. And most of the time we're cruising around and we're too blind to, to acknowledge that it presents them. And then even if we do acknowledge, we don't necessarily have the confidence to, to act upon it. And I mm-hmm. just was dumb enough or ballsy enough to call these guys out. I say like, <laughs> you're screwing up by not doing this. And with, and I believed it. Like I was passionate. I I believe I mean, I'm a wine guy. Right. So, um, you know, I, I think my level of passion and conviction that, that they needed to do this was what they needed to hear in order for them to consider it. But interestingly enough, I'm not the first guy that tried this. So there is a dude um, whose name is uh, escapes me for the moment, from California he, as well. Right. Is he f- well, he, is that right? No, he, oh, he's got a he, vineyard in California. He's got he owns Clodoval That's right. in California. He owns Toltarni in Australia. And then yes, he owns a, which is one of my favorite Australian sparkling wines. Just. Yeah, it's like uh Bernard no Bernard Portes is winemaker at Clodoval. What is the guy's name? John. Anyways, regardless, whatever. This guy was friends with the previous king of Bhutan. Um, and he tried to do this back in the nineties. Like he was there and he saw the potential and he said, let's do this. And the King was like, yeah, let's do this. And so, um, they tried to get this project off the ground in the nineties and it failed. And so it's, there's a piece of me Mm. that's like, okay, here's a billionaire global power player with wineries on three continents and he couldn't get it done. (laughs) (laughs) What in the world makes me think that I can do it? Um, and I think the, the the bottom line is it's a different culture today. It's a different environment there today. The world is different. Supply chains are different. Um, and so things that may not have been possible 30 years ago are possible today. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the other thing that I – and I don't know if this is true or not, but this is kind of what I believe is – this thing has been a pain in the ass. 
doctor. And so it also could very well be that this guy started and was like, oh, this is a pain in the ass. I already have 27 vineyards. Like, I don't need another one. So, yeah. No monkeys, no yeah, green caterpillars. Exactly. I'll just go back to Bordeaux and keep making my Bordeaux and it'll, it'll all be fine. So I hope that it was kind of that, um, but I don't know for sure because, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't there. But it is sometimes a little bit sobering to think about, ah, this guy did it, couldn't get it done. I'm just going to do it instead. <laughs> Grip it and rip it, man. We'll see what happens. Well, I think it, I think it takes the same kind of, uh, you know, whatever whatever it is that inspired you to run the LA Marathon with no training with your buddy. I think that's the same moxie that it would take to uh, dive into this. And I think that's a good, I think that's just a good and very laudable Well, thing. I think, you know, people ask me sometimes, like, the secret to my success. What's the secret to my success? And, and I don't have a great answer for it, but what I believe is I have the capacity to enthusiastically fail over and over and over and over again. <laughs> and then occasionally I succeed. And then everyone's like, look at you, you're a success. And I'm like, yeah, but look at all the failures I had. And, and Bhutan's no different. I mean, I, we planted, you know, 13 varietals. I bet at least seven or eight of them are not going to work. I'm sure of our current vineyards, probably two of them are not going to be long-term viable. And I'm okay with all that. Like, I don't need it yeah. all to work. I just need to find the right mix that does, yeah. and then I'm good to go. Maybe that should be my new approach to training. Just enthusiastically fail a whole ton of times and just hope when I set out for that half marathon that I do it. As long as you get one or two good runs in a week, Rebecca, you know, but that's, that's, that's all you need. That's true. I don't know where to go from here, Morg. I'm just like, I'm just basking in how awesome this all is <laughs> and thinking of planting vineyards and choosing great varieties and this huge possibility to build this amazing story. I'm, I'm very rarely speechless, but you know. Oh, so I can, I can pivot if, if you got, if you'll indulge me for another couple minutes. Of course. Um, so everyone knows I'm a wine guy. And so all my friends were like after me for years to give them wine recommendations. And I was like, dude, I'm not your wine guy. I'm not your on-call sommelier. Go to the store, pick something that you haven't tried, try it, see if you like it. And so this went on for years. A couple of years ago, I was reading a book, a wine book. And in the book, the writer was ripping on Chenin Blanc. And they were like, Chenin Blanc is a garbage grape. And I was <laughs> like, no, it's not. Chenin Blanc is awesome. So I went home and I wrote an email saying, Chenin Blanc is awesome. You guys should all try some. You should try some from Vouvray and you should try some from Sauvignon. And I emailed it to like 10 of my friends and they read it and they're like, this is awesome. Send us another one. So I go, okay, you know what else is cool? Nebbiolo is pretty cool. You should try some of that. Go to Gatnar, go to Gemme. And so I kept doing these emails and those friends would email them to their friends and then their friends would email me and I end up with this list of hundreds and thousands of people from around the world um, wanting these wine recommendations. And so then I started getting requests for, hey, can you send me all the back issues? I'm new to this. And I'm like, no, I'm not a librarian. I'm sorry you're late to the party. No. Too bad no. for you. Yeah. But it got me thinking like, all right, like maybe I should try to make these available. So I batched up the first 52 and I put them into a book with the idea that someone who wanted to get into wine but didn't know where to start could get this. And every week they could read one chapter. It's like two pages and they could buy that wine and they could try it and see if they liked it. So that's how the books were born. That's, that's how drinking and knowing cool. things got started. Yep. And then it became a best-selling wine book. 
casually as you do, just adding that to the resume. <laughs> so, so anyone who's listening, who's a runner, but wants to know more about wine, here's a real easy way to do it. Go buy drinking and knowing things and spend five minutes every week and read about it and try it and see if you like it. If you do, awesome. And if you don't, try the next one. And keep listening to the podcast because we sometimes talk about wine as well as running. <laughs> and you could do that too. You could you could do both of them simultaneously and you will improve your wine knowledge and your training because you'll have Morg's amazing tips. I'm literally like online trying to buy this book <laughs> as we, right now. And, and actually for those of you who <laughs> listening who don't want to buy the book, if you go to drinkingandknowingthings.com and you just put your email in, you will get all of them emailed to you once a week. Um, right. starting with the very first one. So Morg, do it, it. do it. Sign up now. A book. Yeah. Look at all these five-star reviews on Amazon. These people, everyone well, loves it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Morg, you may want to drill down into that because 95% of them are five stars and 5% are one star. <laughs> <laughs> the people that hate it really hate it because I write about wine the way I fucking talk, <laughs> which is with a lot of F-bombs and a lot of, <laughs> direct, you know, just no holds barred. This is what I think. So not everyone's a fan. I'm a little bit worried that this is going to be the end of the podcast because Morgan now <laughs> is going to turn up next week, having read the book, knowing everything about wine, as well as everything about running. I'm going to be completely redundant and we're just going to close it there. <laughs> Peace out, Rebecca. Thanks for playing. I mean, we're going to go out on a high at least. I know. Speaking of f bombs and like uh, record scratches, I don't know. Uh, Rebecca, do we have time for an aid station or not? I know we've gone a little. Uh, long. I've definitely. I mean, I love a snack. I love an intellectual snack even more. So I'm always open for an aid station. If Michael's got time, I think we should take it home. Yeah, I can hear the pouring of wine in the background. Yes. That was me. I love that. This truly might be the last episode of the podcast because Morg is like drinking wine during a record and I've got a glass of water. Like what has happened to us? I know. And we're on reverse like timelines. I know. So anyway, eight station. Bop, bop, bop. This is a part of the podcast where we... As I'm sure you're aware, Michael, like uh, you've done longer races. What's the longest yeah. race you've done? Have you done longer? Have you done even ultras, right? What's, what's like your longest 30. race? Uh, I tried to do a 50 and I and I uh, I ended up getting really, really sick. And so I got to the race and then I decided to not run it. Um, but my, my next goal was 50. Yeah, uh, that's pro move. Anyways, aid station like you would in the middle of a long race. You stop. And instead of thinking about running or moving your body or your mind, you just stop and you say, I'm just going to eat this pickle slice, this pickle slice. potato chip, have a drink of Coke, a sip of Coke, whatever, and like take my mind off it. So in this section, we like to take our minds off of the previous conversation and go a total tangent, non sequitur. Maybe – what's a non sequitur that's actually tied? And, uh, <laughs> it's like just a sequitur, right? Um, so I was thinking about this as we were recording and like I think – I'm really inspired by like this, this idea of Bhutan not ever having wine and this like idea of like races somewhere else. So I'm going to give you, I'm going to give everyone in the aid station, like a private Island in the climate of your choice. Right. So you can have it. So where would your private Island be? It could be like, obviously like a lot of people would pick like Hawaii tropics, Indian ocean, but maybe like Alaska too. There's some cool stuff up in Alaska. You get a private Island 
You get to create one thing on this island Damn that's it. not wine. It could be cheese. It could be the world's greatest bread. It could be the world. You, know, you get to produce one thing, and you get to host one race there, and it can't be running every year. So where's your island? What's your like um, signature? I'm going to say it has to be a, a edible or drinkable thing. And what's your race that isn't running? Race that isn't running. Wow. Okay. Um, that's an interesting question. Um, I would say that... Uh, my island is probably off the coast of Ireland. Oh, nice. Um, and the rationale for that, I thought about like maybe somewhere up in Norway or, you know, in the fjords or somewhere mm-hmm. really spectacular. But the reality of it is that that's too cold for a California boy. Uh, <laughs> but there's some pretty cool islands in and around Ireland and Scotland. Um, yep. and, uh, and I'm Irish. So, so I'd put it there. What would I make there? Um, I think what I would love to do would have a big music studio there where bands could retreat to the oh, yeah. island for a week and record an album or a song or whatever. And, That's a gr- and, awesome. Yeah. Like, the, like that. you know, the, I was about to say the Foo Fighters, but that's uh, probably too soon. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> so really, but, you know, yeah. Pearl Jam wants to get away from everything and go record mm-hmm. their next album. So they go to my little island off the coast of Ireland and no phones, and they just huddle up and make bitchin' music for a week. Uh, and the race, wow, the race, I would think, um, I would probably, it can't be running, huh? Um, or I mean, maybe I'll say it can be running, but it has to be like, it's a set distance, set. T- I, I, I was torn on the running part. So I think I will offer running, but it's like, it's, it's your annual marathon or 5K or biathlon right running plus biking or triathlon I, I'm, I'm actually gonna so, give running okay. back. so if that's the case what i would do is i would have a no rules race no distance no time no whatever just come and run for as long as you want to for yourself and oh there's that's no nice medals, there's no timing there's no whatever just show up and we're all going to run around together and when you want to stop go ahead and stop <laughs> brilliant <laughs> yes that's i couldn't so do good. that I can't have a no rules race. I'm just too competitive. <laughs> but, <laughs> Even so, but though I suck. Ra- all, but all the races, there's always the rules, right? You know, there's, there's, you know, you're always putting a time limit on yourself. And imagine if running was just fun, right? You talk to people who run, very few of them are like, you know, running's fun. <laughs> like, <all over> like, <laughs> running sucks. Like, it's <laughs> brutal, but we do it anyways. Um, but remember when you were a kid and you used to run around in circles? That was awesome. You stretch your arms out like an airplane. Like imagine being able to recapture that kind of joy as an adult. That's yeah. what I want. That's my race. I was still totally. really competitive as a kid. <laughs> That's a good island That's a very right there. Good Especially if the running is happening during like maybe the bands that have been like training at your island, like put on a show. So there's just like live music as people are just running whatever distance they want. Yeah, it's like Lollapalooza, yeah. Lollapalooza with, but, but everyone's running around the stage instead of standing in front of it. How great would that be? <laughs> Love it. And then we drink some wine. I oh, see. Now I don't know what to do. Where am I going to put my island? Does it have to be like, I guess if it's an island, it has to be surrounded by a body of water. I'm trying to think. Uh, some islands like are connected by bridges, yeah. though, you know? I just, I'm trying to think about my ideal climate because. If I'm going to grow something, if like my production has to be edible, then I need somewhere 
Sorry, it has to. You just have to produce it. You could. It could be yeah. like your bread baking island. Because like be your, my, I mean, Michael went with yeah. music, right? So like he's producing. My thing would be apples. Like I'm really obsessed with apples right now. Whoa. Like I mean, just in general, I come from the area of the UK. Well, I don't come originally, but I've spent most of my life in the area of the UK that is absolutely famous for apples. It has the genetic. I'm sure I've talked about this on the pod before, but it has like the living genetic. Um, place for apples so it's like got one of every apple tree species living plus it's got the genetic seed bank for apples like i'm super super into apples i'm kind of a little bit obsessed with them Uh, i have apples in the in the garden (laughs) that we had in the uk and i'm obsessed with this idea that i can't find a good apple in italy and it's really weird and i talk to friends about it and they're like no no no. we've got amazing apples in italy we've got thousands of varieties i was like well where the hell are they like i'm at the market and i'm seeing pink lady and granny smith and you know, fine, but compared to like a Discovery or a Russet or a Cox's or a Bramley, those all suck. So I would absolutely want an island that is in the perfect climate zone for apples. So that either means kind of an island maybe off the coast of Kent, uh, which kind of works. That's like mid-channels and Brittany, obviously, in the northern northern France is famous for apples and cider as well. But maybe I would go New hmm. Zealand because like, I very like nearly too. did move to New Zealand and they've got amazing apples. Uh, and the great thing about apples is you can make so much stuff from them. You can make like apple brandy, apple vinegar, apple wine, mead. So yeah, I'm taking apples on my island and then I've got to have a race of some sort. Oh, I tell you what, it's, a, it's, a, it's an island. So kayaking, kayaking would be my thing. It would oh, be nice. the, the cider kayaking nice. mile thing. <laughs> so you've got to kayak a mile and then neck some apple cider and then kayak another mile until you make it round the island back to the start. Um, but there would be lots of lifeboats just in case. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. So, so is there like buoys that have just pints of cider just floating around the island? Yeah, yeah. You've got to, you've got to, like, oh, you've got to yeah. navigate your way to them with your kayak, neck your pint. Yeah. Uh, And obviously all of the containers would be completely biodegradable, not having any of that plastic in the ocean. We're not doing any of that stuff. I think that would be really fun. Kayaking in New Zealand was one of my like true life highlights. So if I could do that with a pint of very, very, very low alcohol cider. And then the final mile, you'd have to do a shot of mead. There you go. I mean, I like your island (laughs) too. What's on your island? (laughs) You had me until mead. Oh, it really is so good. It's so good. Maybe Calvados, like, you know, a shot of apple brandy. We could do that instead. You get, you know, dealer's choice, dealer's choice at the yeah, end. There you go. Now I'm in. I'm back in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was just, I'll just be quick about it. I think that, like, I grew up in the Olympic Peninsula of Washington State, and there's the San Juan Islands, which are like this very famous island chain, like in the Strait of Juan de Fuca, sort of in between Washington and Vancouver Island. And, like, so I, I would, like, I would pick my. I would have my own <laughs> new island as part of the San Juan Island chain. So I'm like in this northwest beachy environment. Uh, it's not gonna, you know. There's like a lot of crab and salmon and orca whales swimming by. Salt, salty oh. oysters, seaweed. I think I would want to do some sort of. I'm really intrigued by mm. seaweed as like a food. Like I love like. I love that you can buy seaweed. Do you guys ever buy like you buy like these yes. like seaweed snacks in the grocery store? But like it's only like ten calories of seaweed for like all this plastic and stuff. So I'd be really intrigued in some sort of like producing my own seaweed for like snacks or for like mm. rolling up sushi. Or 
can you, you can, can ferment seaweed? Can, can I make seaweed, seaweed wine? Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. So I'm going all in on seaweed. It. And I've got my whole beachy island, like Northwest Beach with sand and driftwood and stuff. And then the race I'm going to do is like, if you've ever seen like these sort of, there's various versions of these, but it's sort of a combination of soapbox derby. <laughs> Red Bull has this like derby race, kinetic sculpture. It would be like come to the island, forge material, like soapbox derby race thing down a hill. So maybe human powered, actually. I mean, obviously you've you've got to make it out of seaweed, right? No driftwood, seaweed, <laughs> like round. I'd, I'd I'd cut some like down trees into rounds for wheels, right? So you'd be building some sort of like buggy out of like forage materials, and then like maybe like someone's pushing it from behind. So I get oh, the running in there. So it's like human powered, like uh, buggy, forage beechwood buggy race. Uh, I'll figure it out. I'll figure out the details. Didn't you once make drinking vessels out of seaweed, like? kelp yeah we got bull kelp and that has which has a big ball in the end and we cut it in half and it turned into like a that's like the best martini vessel ever because it's a little bit salty that's what it was for that's what we put in it it was my buddy's birthday on the beach and we made dirty martinis in the half bull kelp dome such a pro tumbler i think we i think we nailed it guys i want to i want to do the you know, I don't know if you've heard about it, but in the UK, there's the three peaks challenge where people run the three peaks, the three highest peaks in the UK. I feel like we now need to have the three island challenge. <laughs> it's the <laughs> new you complete station. all three, you get like a special t-shirt. Exactly. And a bottle of wine from Bhutan. And a bottle of Sercam. Yep. Sercam, <laughs> that's, good, that's a good name. I think it's iconic. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining us on Running for the Wine. What an incredibly interesting and inspiring episode. I hope our listeners enjoy listening as much as I have, and I'm sure Morg have enjoyed being a part of it. I definitely loved having it. This was highly entertaining, and it felt like uh, I looked down and just realized we've been going for like an hour and a half, which it certainly didn't feel like that to me. So. Yep. I enjoyed the time and I joined the opportunity to tell my story. Uh, before you head off and we wrap up, uh, is there anything you want to plug? Where can our listeners find you, learn more about all the cool stuff that you're involved in? Wow. Okay. So you could certainly follow uh, Bhutan Wine at uh, BhutanWine.com or, or at Bhutan Wine on Twitter. Uh, drinking and Knowing Things and um, all of my wine books actually are linked on drinkingandknowingthings.com where you can follow me on Instagram at, at drinkingandknowing. We didn't talk about my uh, highest rated rum company in the world. Yes, uh, but- that's a whole other thing we didn't get to. <laughs> my God. Got to that, but, uh, if people are interested in that, they can check out socalrum.com or at socalrum. Um, and yeah, feel free to, uh, to reach out to me. I always love hearing from, uh, from my readers and, and uh, my, I, I dare, dare I call them fans uh, that are out there. So I'm, I'm highly accessible to folks and look forward to sharing Bhutanese wine with uh, all of you someday. Someday yes. soon. Uh, I think knowing about the rum, maybe we need to do a return episode with Michael and Cristiano and do a little running for the spirits episode later in the yes. year. Michael, thank you again. It's been amazing. That's about it for this time on Running for the Wine. We are on Instagram at Running for the Wine. The website is runningforthewine.com. I'm very sorry, everyone. I have not been updating the website as frequently as I would like. Uh, I've been busy drinking wine and running. (laughs) Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts so we can share the love and make sure everyone finds us and finds our amazing guests. Thank you for listening. Tune in next time for more random running and wine chat. I'm Rebecca. I'm Morton. 
and we're running for the wine. And remember, it's important to stay hydrated, so everything in moderation. Running for the wine.